Last week, we were left with a little bit of a cliffhanger, but so I'm, if you weren't here last week, I want to catch everyone up just about what is going on. We've been studying Ruth and now Esther, women of the Old Testament who led faithful lives. Um, and we were less left last week with um, hearing about Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's cousin who has raised Esther as an orphan. Her parents are dead. They are diaspora Jews, dispersed Jews, living in the Persian Empire probably a generation or two after the Babylonian exile. So they have grown up in Persia. They don't know anything about Jerusalem. They've never lived in Jerusalem. They are at home in the Persian Empire. And it's a story of court intrigue. Mordecai is a courtier. He serves the king, and he is raising Esther. And if Ruth, we said, was a story that was sort of an extended parable, Esther is a novella. There's good guys, villains, uh, lots of excitement. It's fast-paced, and so we're always hoping that the good wins over the bad, and let's see what happens. So here are the players in the story of Esther as a reminder. Of course, we have Esther and Mordecai. And then we have King Ahasuerus. Uh, the king is sort of this caricature of, he's sort of a bumbling king. He's impulsive, doesn't make a decision without his court advisors, um, and he's just impulsive. Of course, he always has his court advisors, someone telling him what to do. He can't make a decision without them. And then there was Queen Vashti, his queen. And then we can all hiss, <laughs> Haman is the villain. Haman is what the scripture uh, painted as a Agagite or an Amalekite uh, who is also serving in the court. He's very close to the king. And we learn that Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul. Haman is a descendant of King Agag. And way back when, their early times, Saul and Agag went into battle, battle head to head. And because of a series of unfortunate events, Saul loses his crown because of King Agag. And um, in the battle that ensues, Saul destroys all of Agag's people, keeps Agag alive, but he plunders some of the goods from Agag's people, and God had told him not to do that, so he lost his crown. So these two um, are rivals throughout biblical history, the Amalekites and the Israelites. So they're a nemesis. Vashti, Queen Vashti, is banished at a banquet. Banquets play very heavily in this story, and as we learned last week, banquets are just not your typical rubber chicken affairs. There's <laughs> always a lot of wine flowing and not a lot of common sense sometimes coming out of the decisions made during the banquets. Vashti, during a 180-day banquet given by the king, refuses to, what the, the king summons her to appear in her crown so he can show off her beauty. And she goes, no way am I coming in front of this group of probably drunk people. So she refuses to be summoned by the king, and he calls his advisors and says, 
what does the law say about what I should do about this? And they don't quote the law. They just say, well, let me tell you what we think you should do. And they turn this thing that was a personal affront to the king into a kingdom-wide crisis. You know, if you let the queen get away with this, every woman in the kingdom is going to stop obeying her husband and we're going to have a nation a national crisis on our hands so we need there, there needs to be a decree that men need to be the head of their households the kings in their households and Vashi should be banished and the king goes okay so he always is taking bad advice so to replace the queen there is a year-long beauty contest to find a new queen and the most beautiful girls are brought from all over the kingdom, the empire, to the palace. And guess who wins? Esther wins the favor of the king. She is crowned queen. Uh, Haman is elevated to a higher position of power in the kingdom. And Mordecai, during this time, uncovers a plot for the king's life, reports it, um, and so the people who are plotting to kill him are destroyed. But Mordecai is not, um, he's not rewarded. It's sort of an oversight. Mordecai isn't rewarded. But Haman is elevated in power, and he seemingly has done nothing to uh, procure the king's favor. But he's given a really high position in, in the palace. And so... It's stated that, every, that Mordecai wants everyone to bow down to him, and, uh, and Mordecai says, not doing it. We don't know why. Probably not for religious purposes. Probably just because of maybe their bad history. So, but we don't know. So Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. And once again, a personal slight turns into a threat to the empire. Everything is overblown. Haman says, goes to the king and says, there's a people, there are people in the empire who um, don't keep the king's commands. And so, and they do, they have their own laws and things too. And really, they're not worth keeping around. And I think they should be destroyed. They should be killed and annihilated. And he doesn't tell the king who it is. He just says these people. And oh, by the way, if you let me deal with them, I'll put 10,000 pieces of silver into the the king's bank account basically and he goes here's my signet signet ring okay do what you want to these people so Haman cast per lot uh, rolls the dice to determine an extermination date for these people and and this is where the word Purim comes from Esther is read each year in the synagogues during the festival of Purim which celebrates the salvation of the Jews from extermination in the empire here. So he casts lots to determine what day is going to be a good day to have everyone killed. And a decree is posted throughout the empire that all the Jews will be killed on one day. Esther's Jewish identity has been hidden up until this point. Action is called for. Something drastic needs to happen to save the people. We need some action to save, but where is it going to come from? And so today we jump into chapter four and we're gonna see if we can get closer to finding out. We think we know who's gonna help bring this action, but let's see. 
When Mordecai learned all that had been done about this decree and about what Haman had done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city wailing. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. You know, this is where he's been working. He's a courtier. He's been working in the king's palace. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one might enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So he has to stop at the entrance. Wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, so sackcloth and ashes we all know um, is a sign of mourning. And so Mordecai's response to the decree is to tear his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, this typical sign of mourning in the Bible. And we see this in Genesis when uh, Joseph uh, has gone missing from this pit where his brothers have stashed him. Uh, they're trying to get rid of him, but anyway, when Reuben, his brother, returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. We also see this with Joseph's father, Jacob, when he thinks Joseph has been killed. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many, many days. So these gestures, uh, this tearing of clothing and putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes, are most often reserved for mourning of the dead. And so our question here, is Mordecai mourning his people's death in advance and his own demise? Or could this be a petition for divine assistance? Because we see in Jonah, if you remember the, the prophet Jonah, God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. You know, those decadent people in Nineveh, they've been doing awful things, and you tell them, I'm going to destroy them in however many days. It's coming. Just let them know it's coming. So when the news reached the king of Nineveh that they were going to be destroyed, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal shall feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. Can you see all the cows with their sackcloth on? You know, <laughs> everybody in the little, and the ducks with sackcloth. Everybody's in sackcloth, and, and they're all fasting and petitioning God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that's in their hands. Who knows? We're going to see this word, this phrase again. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. So the king of Nineveh is saying, let's put on sackcloth and ashes. We're going to pray and we're going to ask God to, that maybe if we turn around and do something different, maybe God will deliver us. So there's this prayer of deliverance. Is that what Mordecai is doing? Of course, we remember God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. So it leaves us to the reader to decide what's going on here. Is Mordecai grief-stricken or is he guilt-ridden? Because his, does he realize that his actions are what have brought troubles to the Jews? So are his actions out of mourning? Are they petitions for salvation? Or is he repenting for what he's done? We don't know. 
We are told that the Jews who find out about this decree are also fasting as the Ninevites do. But again, there's no mention of petitioning God. It's absent. But what do we all think of if you're a Jew and you're reading this story and they say, fast? What do you think when you say fast? Pray. Yeah, that's just the prayer and fasting go hand in hand. So would that be going through the back of everyone's minds here? So fasting and praying go hand in hand. Could it be that God's presence or the hope of God's action is implied? It's for the reader to decide. Then Esther, so when Esther, when Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai being at the gate in his morning clothes, the queen was deeply distressed. Then Esther called for Hathak, appointed to attend her, he's one of the eunuchs, and ordered him to go out to Mordecai to learn what was happening, what's going on here, and why. So she doesn't know. Mordecai told him all that happened and the exact sum of money that Haman promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree that he might show it to Esther, which shows us that maybe he and Esther are literate, which is an odd thing for this era. And not only show her the decree, but charge her to go to the king and make supplication to him and entreat him for her people. He's saying this to one of her servants, entreat the king for her people. So Queen Esther has led such a shelter's existence in the palace, in the harem, that both she and her servants know nothing about the decree that Haman has sent out in Susa. Mordecai, however, seems to know all the secrets of the palace, even things that we didn't know that he should know, like how much money was given to the king for the destruction of these people. But however, he is a courtier, so he would probably have inside information. And he says, make supplication for her people. So Mordecai has a plan, and he expects that Esther is going to obey it, because what has Esther done all along so far? Everything that Mordecai has said, she's obeyed, right? Because chapter 2 tells us, Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him, since she was a little girl. However, this is very interesting. We, I told you last week there are three different versions of Esther. This, the, the Hebrew version is the oldest, and it's the shortest. It's the one that has no mention of God. Then there are two others. One is the Septuagint, and they try to make up for this absence of God, thinking surely this writer made a mistake. So they introduce things, but one thing they introduce too is, is another explanation of why Esther should be obligated to Mordecai. Mordecai says in the, in the Septuagint, remembering your humble station when you were supported by my hand, call upon the Lord and speak to the king and save us from death. But we don't find that in this version. So her people appears that the cat is out of the bag. At least we know now that Esther's servants know that she's Jewish, just like Mordecai. And so Hathak went away and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a message for Mordecai. So we've got the, the messenger going back and forth. So she can't, Mordecai's outside the gate and her messengers are going back and forth. 
So she says, okay, now tell Mordecai this. All the king's servants and the people in the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. Shocker. Esther, for the first time, refuses to do something that Mordecai has told her to do. Or right now, she's saying, this is not a good idea. She's stating it's for reasons of palace protocol and probably to save her life. Um, even Mordecai knows that to appear without summons could mean death. But this is a life and death situation. However, it's really ironic that Queen Vashti is banished for refusing to appear before the king when she's summoned, and Queen Esther risks death by appearing unsummoned. So there's a lot of irony here in the story. And Esther has not been summoned for 30 days, which could indicate that maybe her influence has diminished a little bit, and so she's really uncertain um, whether or not her intervention would be helpful at all. But there are other characters in the Bible we find when kind of being called to take drastic measures to save their people have been reluctant as well. Um, we think of uh, Jeremiah uh, saying, oh Lord, I'm too young. <laughs> not me, not me. But the most popular one is Moses uh, at the burning bush when God says, I want you to lead my people out of slavery Moses says oh my Lord I have never been eloquent and I am slow of speech and slow of tongue oh Lord please send someone else and I'm sure Esther is thinking the same thing Esther really is kind of like a Moses figure here she's in the she's been in the court she's being called to do something that could be dangerous and she's saying surely not me there's got to be someone else when they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. They're going back and forth. This is really kind of funny. Do not think in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews, girlfriend. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family, that'd be Mordecai, will perish. Who knows? Where have we seen that? Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. So Mordecai takes a severe tone. And he reminds Esther first that she's Jewish. The decree applies to her also. It's not just everybody else. And second, she's not safe in the palace because that's where the decree originated. Relief will, will rise from another quarter. This um, seems to be have a religious undertones. We're not saying God, but there's religious undertones. There seems to be an assumption that something, perhaps divine providence, is working to save the Jews, whether directly or through human action. And Esther needs to choose to cooperate. If not, 
she may just be working against God. God might be working in the background through her human action, and if she refuses, she's going against God's will. So who knows, he says. Maybe Esther's ascent to the throne. Um, again, if you're a good Jewish person reading this, you could maybe infer Maybe her ascent to the throne is providence. Maybe this is, this is the place for her so that she can save the Jews. If she doesn't act, she may be disobeying God's unspoken plan. So Mordecai's stance, although he and Esther have been very obedient to Persian law, if there's a conflict between the Persian law and the lives of the Jewish people, Esther must choose her people. That's, all, that's just the way that should be. So that's where his stance. Now here's what she says. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days. So in the back of your mind, when you're holding a fast, what do you think is going on? Maybe so. I and my maids will also fast as you do. So what? The whole kingdom's going to fast. Everybody. Everybody fast. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther begins to take charge. For the first time, Esther has gone from being obedient and compliant to taking charge and, and being the one that's giving the orders. Even though she's sort of, she's following what Mordecai said she should do, she's going to do it under her own plan, her own terms, and now she's giving orders to him. Here's what we're going to do. So she has her own plan, and she's, up until this point, she's not been one from whom we would expect great things. She's been a beauty queen and pleasing and sweet until now. And now she's living into her royal authority as the queen and even Mordecai, her uncle slash father, obeys her. So she calls a three-day fast. And of course, this really can only can be seen in this instance as an act of petition on her behalf. Everybody fast because something needs to go right here if I'm going to break the law. And it's the only overtly religious act in this entire book. And yet it's almost palpable, isn't it? You can feel that she's really asking for something great to happen. And, and the other incredible thing about this is if you think about it, her, her maids are probably not Jewish. And she's saying, you're in this too, girls. <laughs> Every, everybody's going to get on. Everybody's going to fast. We're all in this together. And we find um, another place where... Fasting is used for petition to save life in 2 Samuel. David's son is near death, uh, King David, and it says, David therefore pleaded with God for the child. David fasted and went in and, and lay all night on the ground. So fasting then stands in sharp contrast to all these banquets we've been having before and the ones that are going to come after. We've had all of this indulgence, and now we're fasting to see what can happen. So, on the third day, Esther got up. She put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. The king was sitting on his royal throne inside the palace. 
as soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, now we're wondering, is it thumbs up or thumbs down? She won his favor, and he held out to her the golden scepter. Whew. Then Esther approached and touched the top of the scepter. The king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Well, that's very gracious. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, and what do we expect? You expect her to fall on her knees and say, Please, please, please save my people. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And while they were drinking wine, which always happens at banquets in, in this story, the king is feeling good, the king says to Esther, what is, it, what is your petition? It shall be granted you even to the half of my kingdom. And so we're, what are we expecting? Yeah, yeah, then save me, save me. Then Queen Esther said, this is my petition. If I have won your favor, and she has, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to a banquet that I will prepare for them, and then I will do as the king has said. So she's putting off asking, why would she wait? She puts on her royal robes. It, she literally clothes herself in royalty in contrast to Vashti, remember, who refused to appear when summoned before the king wearing the crown. So in this, she ensures that she's showing up adorned in all the proper regalia before she approaches the king. And she wins his favor. We've seen this before, too. She wins his favor just as she has in the past. And, and he uses the title queen several times, indicating her elevated and favored status. But if she loses that favor, her fate could be the same or worse than Vashti's. It will be worse than Vashti's. And the Jews will be destroyed. And so the stakes are high. And we know that she is playing a very dangerous game, one that she has to play very wisely. So the king realizes that something is urgent. Um, he realizes that if she's going to show up unsummoned, she's putting her life at risk. And so um, this, she's putting her life at risk. And so he asks her immediately, what is your request? And I, pr I promise I'll grant it. So he has, I guess, compassion on her as well as favor for her. And our expectation, of course, is that she's going to fall on her knees and beg for the lives of her people. But instead, she says, why don't y'all come to a dinner party? And um, so anyway, by accepting and getting a Hazarus to accept her hospitality, she really ingratiates herself more to him and obligates the king to her. So it's like, if I can do this and make you more and more obligated, I'm more likely to get what I want for my next, my larger request. She includes Haman, I think, for very strategic reasons, and that is to keep her enemy very near and to have him obligated to her as well. And then we repeat this action of at the second banquet, which, of course, puts the king in this drinking and asking again. The king's in, in an expansive mood. And just think when we think Esther's going to offer her request, 
She says, if I have won the favor and if it pleases the king, remember this term, if it pleases the king has been used all throughout this. And anytime anyone comes to the king and says, if it pleases the king in Esther, what happens? He does it. Sometimes he does stupid things when people say, if it pleases the king, let's get rid of Vashti. If it pleases the king, uh, let me get rid of these people. If it pleases the king. So she knows how to kind of manipulate him a little bit. So the king is going to prove his favor by coming to another banquet with Haman the next day. And here our story picks back up. So by coming to the second banquet, the king has agreed then to grant her request. And she has the king backed into a corner and he has allowed that to happen. So for the first time we see power exercised by a Jewish character. And Esther has three disadvantages, of course, when it comes to power. She's a woman. She's Jewish. Um, she's an orphan. And so all of these combined, this Jewishness and being an orphan, uh, will make us think of her marginalized status, her powerlessness, and of course, as a, a Jew reading this, we're knowing that something great's going to happen because God always works through the powerless and the marginalized in the Bible, right? We hope. So her use of power is the first time that power has been exercised wisely in this story and for a good means for, to try to help save someone's life. But danger is still lurking ahead. So Haman went out that day happy and in good spirits. Of course he is because he's had lunch with the king and the queen. He's a great guy. But when Haman saw Mordecai sitting in that sackcloth at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was infuriated with Mordecai. And we know what happens in this story when people get infuriated, bad things happen. Then he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, how great he was, and how he had had lunch with the king and queen, and how the king had advanced him above the officials of the king. Yet all this does me no good so long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting in the king's gate. He's a burr in my backside. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Well, just get rid of him. Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the banquet in good spirits. That should take care of things. <laughs> this advice pleased Haman. And so he had the gallows made. And now we hear organ music playing in the background. So Haman has been lulled into this false sense of security by his position, while Mordecai really is acting kind of rashly and not very wisely in regard to Haman, his nemesis, the Agagite. Haman's wife indicates he doesn't have to wait a year to be rid of Mordecai, just have him killed. And so the gallows really are like 75 feet high. That ought to do it, right? Let's just build them 75 feet high. Everything is overblown in this story. While Esther, as we said, is the model of wisdom, she seeks advice. Remember, she comes to the palace and she seeks advice. Uh, and we find this in, all in the wisdom literature of, of Proverbs. We're going to see that she really is kind of one of these Proverbs wisdom people. Fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to advice. Esther does this. Esther also is careful in her speech, which we see in Proverbs. Those who guard their mouths 
preserve their lives. Those who open wide their lips come to ruin, which we're about to see happen. She is also, she doesn't antagonize the powerful, such as the king. And we see this in Proverbs. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and whoever is wise will appease it. So Esther has been wise on all of these accounts. That night, the king couldn't sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of records, the annals, and they were read to the king. Nothing can put you sleep better than a record book, right? It was written how Mordecai had told about two of the king's eunuchs who had conspired to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Huh. Then the king said, what honor has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? What did I do, what did I do for this guy for saving my life? The king's servant said, not a thing. Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Because, you know, I have to ask advice because I can't make decisions by myself. Now, Haman had just entered the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows he had prepared. So the king's servants told him, well, Haman is there. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, now, what should be done for um, the man whom the king wishes to honor? Well, Haman said to himself, whom else would the king wish to honor but me? <laughs> and so Haman said to the king, for that man, let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden with a royal crown on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let him robe the, ram the man whom the king wishes to honor and let him conduct the man on horseback through the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. He just sees himself being paraded through the streets and everyone waving and saying, oh look, isn't that wonderful? Haman is incredible. Then the king said to Haman, quickly, as you have said, do so to the Jew Mordecai. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> so you'd think that Haman would say, I doth protest. But he says, so Haman took the robes and the horse and robed Mordecai and led him riding through the city, proclaiming, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. So both Esther's plan and Haman's plot in these, in these verses seem to be progressing when all of a sudden something happens. The king suffers from a spell of insomnia. It just so happens, you know. So is this coincidence or is it divine providence? That's the question. Josephus, the historian, chalks it up to God. And he says, but God mocked Haman's wicked hopes. That night he deprived the king of sleep. And is it a coincidence or divine providence that it just so happens that Ahasuerus has the annals brought in as a sleep aid? Or that Mordecai's passage is opened and read? Or that Haman, overly eager to carry out his revenge on Mordecai, just happens to walk in the courtyard at the same time? The reader must decide. Is this coincidence or divine intervention? So, 
and what what some scholars call this series of multiple silences has begun where the king doesn't say whom he wishes to honor Haman doesn't know that it's Mordecai um, Haman doesn't tell the king what's really going on in the background that he and Mordecai are these nemesis these virtual enemies and Esther is silent about being Jewish and her relation to Mordecai up until now so we see Haman's ego has created this trap and he's requested all these royal garments to be honored so he's really requesting the royal treatment for himself we saw this happen with um, the Pharaoh and Joseph except Joseph earned his removing his signet ring from his hand Pharaoh put it on Joseph's hand he arrayed him with garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck and had him ride in the chariot of his second in command and they cried out in front of him bow the knee thus he set him over all the land of Egypt this is what Mordecai had hopes for in himself didn't happen um, so the king in the story true to his character is impulsive he acts without thinking he and he just accepts Haman's advice which sounds like really good advice and he leaves Haman humiliated and trapped and of course Haman doesn't say anything and this is interesting that he that he talks about Mordecai he says do this do all of this for the Jew Mordecai um, so the king's use of this phrase tells us the king doesn't even realize that this edict that he has let go out from Haman is affecting the Jews he hasn't even read the decree the decree's gone out to kill the Jews the king knows that some people are going to be gotten rid of but he's honoring the Jew at the same time Haman is plotting to kill him uh, so he's he's just unconnected um, rabbinic additions note that Haman's daughter this is just sort of lore Haman's daughter seeing that Haman and, uh, and Mordecai riding along from her rooftop suppose Haman is the one on the horse and Mordecai's leading him and so she empties her chamber pot on Mordecai's head I mean not on Mordecai's head on Haman's head so Haman has been humbled and Mordecai has been rightly elevated and um, we see this in in Jesus's um, language in Luke when he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor this is at the dinner table he told them a parable when you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host and the host who invited both of you may come in and say to you give this person your place and then in disgrace you would start to take the lowest place you'd have to get up and move but when you are invited go and sit down in the lowest place so that when your host comes he may say to you friend move up higher then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted and that's what's happened here Haman has exalted himself he's been humbled Mordecai and Esther have been humble throughout and Mordecai has been exalted and then we end then Mordecai returned to the king's gate where he always was right but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered they've changed places now 
When Haman told his wife Zeresh and his friends all that happened, they said to him, If Mordecai, before whom your downfall has become, is of the Jewish people, and they all knew he was, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Then the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman off to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Today's reading ends almost as it began with Mordecai at the king's gate. But he is now, he's gone from ashes and sackcloth to royal finery and being elevated. And it's Haman who is mourning. And he's mourning because of his humiliation. And he is also mourning for his foreshadowed downfall. And it's highlighted, of course, by his friends and wife's words. Is that because he's an Agagite? Is he going to have a downfall because the Jews have divine protection? We don't know. The book of Esther um, reminds us that even when God appears to be absent in our lives, not even mentioned, God can be most present working through willing followers. But for now, we wait for the action of one who can bring about salvation. What's going to happen at the next banquet? Will Esther prevail? Will Haman? Will the Jews be saved? Stay tuned next week. <laughs> <laughs>